Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for that fantastic welcome um, to Wangare Matai. And, and this is a very nice occasion for us, not only to have you here, but also because it's, uh, it's the Hamlin Lecture for this year, which is going to be the beginning of a lecture series, and we're really thrilled to have Mark and Moira Hamlin involved with the festival and committed to doing this kind of lecture and attracting someone like you to come all the way here to see us in Welsh Wales. Um, I suspect she doesn't need a lot of introduction to you, but if there's anyone in the audience who isn't in the know about this very wonderful and remarkable woman sitting next to me, Wangarai Matai was born in 1940 in a rural Kenyan village um, she went through an extraordinary childhood, which we're going to come on and talk to um, at the end of a kind of colonial era. Um, but she went through an education system at a time for a Kenyan girl was a really, really difficult thing to do. And so excelled at her studies that in time she was in the United States. She took degrees and masters and indeed a PhD. She became the first full professor of a Kenyan university, went into politics. Um, that makes the story sound straightforward. It's anything but. She's also been from childhood a committed lover of the environment and has an enormous understanding of the importance of the environment in Africa and the importance of the role that women play in maintaining and nurturing that, something that I'm particularly interested in. But um, before we go into all of that and into wider issues as well that I know she wants to talk about to do with the impact of climate change on Africa, um, I was completely thrilled and, and blown away by when I said to her a little while ago, I said, so where have you just come from? And she told me she'd just come from Ireland and she'd been to an incredibly special meeting. <laughs> Over to you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Rosie Boycott, and thank you very much, um, audience at the Hay um, <coughs> Festival. And I also want to say Buenos Noches uh, Madrid Book Fair, <laughs> <laughs> who are joining us. Um, and we are very, very happy to be here tonight. I also want to recognize the uh, Hamlin family who have uh, sponsored this uh, uh, lecture. And uh, to say then that um, when, as you see in the book, I was taught by Irish sisters, initially consolata sisters from uh, Italy, and then in high school by Loreto sisters from Ireland. And I have never been in Ireland. Never? Never. Oh. So for me, it was almost nostalgic because I felt like I knew Ireland because of the relationship with the sisters but I had never been there. And uh, the, when we were given an opportunity to go and do some shopping, guess what I was looking for? Some Irish jigs music. <laughs> I wanted to demonstrate that I could do some jigs. <laughs> and um, we had a fantastic meeting at, um, at Galway uh, with five of the seven living women peace laureates. Uh, we were with uh, Jody uh, Williams, Betty Williams, uh, Myrid Maguire, uh, and um, myself. And Shirini Beatty from Iran. Yeah, and Shirini Beatty uh, from Iran. And we were joined through the spirit because all we had was flowers 
and a picture of uh, An Sun Suichi, whom you know is still under house arrest. And Rigoberta Menchu couldn't join us because she's campaigning to become the president this of Guatemala. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, well, we hope you're going to do that one day too, but we'll come to that. So, but you, you were talking specifically this week, weren't you, about the, the impact on women in the Middle East of, of the war and the continued wars? Yeah, we focused mainly on um, the Middle East and the impact the wars in that region are having, especially on women and children, and wondering what we, the women laureates, could do to raise awareness and also to raise the issues uh, that continue to, to fuel uh, wars and conflict in that region. And as we all know, whatever happens in that region is in, impacting very negatively on many other parts of the world. We also had people from Uganda who described the conflict in the northern part of Uganda. Uh, and uh, so we were really looking at um, the conflicts, and from my own perspective, uh, it's always important for me to say that as women, and even as peace people, we like to focus on the pain and the misery of the people who live in conflict and in wars. But quite often, we are not able to focus on what causes those wars. And I was very happy to have one of the presenters uh, who focused very much on the fact that the wars in the Middle East are very much driven by the desire by people with power to control the oil, mm. uh, the oil fields in the, um, in the Middle East. And although originally uh, most of us were persuaded that that uh, there may be uh, weapons of mass destruction. Now we know that mm -hmm. perhaps that was not so. But I, I was really amazed to see this analysis of how wars are fueled by corporations and the desire to control these very precious uh, natural resources and how people can uh, end up having such great miseries and lose so much life uh, because somebody wants to get this natural resource. So for me, it's very interesting because I always say that many of the wars we fight on the planet are due to uh, our des desire to access and control resources, uh, whether they are oil, whether yeah. they are forests, whether they are land. And at the micro level, in, in fact, in Kenya, sometimes we are fighting over access to watering point for our animals and for the people. So it's very interesting to see the linkage between um, the manner we, we want to control resources and the way we precipitate crisis around those resources. Yeah, it's just greed at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of greed, a little bit of uh, uh, selfishness also. Mm. Uh, for those who, who really think that the only way we can access those resources is is by having uh, control, because we could promote fairness and justice and allow the people of the land to have control of their resources and to sell those resources in a fair trade, in a fair field where they can get what is uh, their rightful due for their resources. But you know, the world doesn't always work like that. 
When you were, you, you're talking about resources in Kenya, and I was very moved by your descriptions of your childhood in, in the 40s in Kenya. And you talk about very much a land where there's always a lot to eat. Everything grows. It's very, very vibrant and fertile. And, you know, how that over the years changed. But just tell us a bit of, about your childhood and what the impact of, of colonialism was, because... I think as, as I maybe, I share this with other people in this room, but you know, we all read the books like uh, White Mischief and, and knew about the Happy Valley set and knew about the kind of giddy life that the British colonials led in Kenya. And it, it, you write a little bit about what it was like from the other side. And, and could you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, for me, I was not on the White Mischief side. No. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure you uh, missed much, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was a very exciting time because it was a time when the country was literally being opened up. And uh, we, we read sometimes, as I say in the book, very nostalgically of how the first missionaries, when they arrived, they saw this beautiful land with mountains uh, right on the equator, but nevertheless with snow and ice with beautiful rivers and very fertile soil. And they, uh, they write, and, and, and as they teach us for the first time to learn how to read and write, uh, they write about how we ought to be very grateful to God because we have been given this land, which is literally like land of milk and honey. And uh, then, of course, at that time, people are living life of uh, subsistence. They cultivate where they need. They cultivate enough food to eat. There is no export of crops. There is no machinery. Everything is done by hand. And then suddenly we introduce machines and we introduce cash crops such as coffee and tea and pyrethrum and sugarcane. We introduce really high commercial agriculture and we, we find ourselves being displaced from the land that is suitable for agriculture and being moved uh, to areas that are less productive, and our parents being moved to, the, to these plantations to start working as um, laborers. So it was father, very exciting. Your father did. My father did. My father was, uh, as I say in the book, my father was a mechanic. My father was a little bit uh, lucky because he could barely read and, or, and write. And he had taught, he had been taught some uh, skills of, uh, as a mechanic. And so when he went into, to work on this, uh, on Mr. Nellan's yes. farm, he finds himself privileged because he can drive and he can uh, repair tractors, he can repair cars. So he gets a good job of about a dollar a month. How, how did you, when you have a, a father who doesn't read and write, how did you get to school as such, and how did you start to get on at school? Because you, nobody cared much about educating a young Kenyan girl, did they? No, at that <laughs> time, uh, very few parents were thinking about education, but I think my father, um, uh, because he had gone to school and he had learned uh, how to read and write, uh, he wanted his sons to go to school. And although Mr. Nellan's farm didn't have any schools and therefore the children were used to pick pyrethrum. I don't know whether you know pyrethrum, but pyrethrum is, looks more like daisies. I see a lot of them along the, the roads. Beautiful daisies. It's really that family. 
and uh, it produces a very uh, potent insecticide. And at that time, it was the insecticide of choice. Later on, it was replaced, but now because of environmental awareness, we are going back to it. But many children were, were, were used to pick that flower because uh, by the time you are about uh, uh, three feet, you are almost as tall as the pyrethrum. So you can pick the, the flowers very easily. And, um, and that's what we grew up knowing, that's what we will do. But my father wanted his sons to go to school, and so he decided to send his sons back to where we came from, uh, to the land of our childhood. Mm -hmm. And for my, my mother was supposed to go back and take care of the boys. But I went because I was required to take care, to help my mother, especially with my younger brothers and sisters. So I wasn't going back to go to school. And as I say in the book, it was my eldest brother who asked my mother why I don't go to school with them. And, uh, and my mother, bless her heart, she said, no reason, no good reason. She can go to school. I really am forever grateful to my mother because she could have said, I need her. She had to fetch firewood for me. She should uh, help with the little siblings. I need her because that was the role of the young girls. A young girl in, in that society was almost like the second woman in the home. And I used to take care even of my brothers. And they were bigger than me, and I used to take care of them. I used to wash their clothes. I used to cook for them. And they were older than me. They never thought twice about telling me to cook. And when, once you got to school, did your, your, your teachers soon saw that you were, um, you were really bright? Well, I don't know what my teachers thought, but I had uh, the teachers liked me. There was one teacher who actually liked me a lot, and he encouraged me. I think that is typical of teachers. When they see a bright child and an interested child, they tend to like that child. And somehow, the child also likes the teacher. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes actually influences the desire of children to learn. And, and this is good for teachers to know that you, you can nearly make children love the subject because, yes, because you they seem love to the like teacher. them. Yes. Yeah. And somehow the teachers liked me and so I had great time in school. I loved school. You went on to specialise in um, the sciences, in the natural sciences. Where did that early love come from of things growing and nature and how did you start to understand the importance of the natural world in the kind of bigger scheme of things? You know, it almost came naturally to yeah. me because I, I grew up in the countryside. Uh, I didn't know urban centers. I was scared of urban centers. Anyway, every time I passed it through it, there were cars and there were many people. It was much safer to be in the countryside. And I, as I say in the book, I worked with my mother. My mother was literally my, uh, the person in my life. And she was a peasant woman. She was growing her crops. And so she took me wherever she went, in the field. I describe in the book how she gives me a piece of land, just about three feet by four feet. And she tells me, that's your farm, and you can plant whatever you want there. So I would go there and cultivate a very small piece of land. And usually I would plant before she does. And I was very fascinated by the seeds germinating. I didn't know about uh, nature study and biology and all that, but I've, I found it fascinating. And I used to go and, and uh, get hold of the seeds and look, see what is happening. 
And so I could see the roots going down, and I was fascinated. And then the shoots would come up, especially of the beans. And uh, later on, when I learned about the monocotyledons and the dicotyledons, that was for me, of course, fascinating. But the, the, the touch of the soil and the smell of the land and the beauty of the green countryside still fascinates me. And uh, when I come, like now, to Europe, it's beautiful. When I come in winter, I'm horrified because every, <laughs> every tree seemed like they are, it has gone to sleep, it's dead. And it is amazing how, much, how they come back to life. So for me, biology and uh, nature study almost came as second nature. But when did you know you wanted to, to use it? To, it was when you came back from America, wasn't it, really? And you could see that the land of Kenya was starting to be very devastated. Yes. It was very interesting because when I came back to Kenya, I was uh, very enthusiastic, like most young people think they can fix all the problems of the world, and I thought I could um, <laughs> at least fix the education system. So I joined the University of Nairobi, and uh, there is a story of how suddenly I found myself fighting for my rights because I was not getting the same terms of service as the men colleagues. Because you were a woman. Because I was a woman, and that yeah. was a shock. Yeah. Because I had never thought of myself as a woman. I thought of myself as a good scientist. Mm -hmm. And so when I was told you are a woman, I said, oh, wait a minute. I didn't know that. <laughs> and, um, and then when, uh, when I was uh, now teaching, and uh, in the university, you are required to do research. And it was actually, I decided that because I was teaching in the School of Veterinary Medicine, even though I'm not a vet, although many people think I am, because I spent some 15 years teaching first year uh, students in the School of Veterinary Medicine. So sometimes during that time, especially, my friends would ask me to come and uh, check their goats uh, or bring me their dogs and cats and say, we know you are a vet, fix it. And I would say, at your own risk. <laughs> so when I was, I wanted to make a contribution. And I thought one way in which I can make a contribution to the School of Veterinary Medicine is if I studied a disease that was very prevalent and which was um, making it very difficult for farmers to keep high-grade cattle. We were trying to improve our indigenous cattle. And we would import either semen or bulls from Europe, especially the Frisians, the Ganses. We wanted to, to have a little bit of them for milk. And, um, but these cattle, they are 100% fatal to this disease. It's called East Coast Fever. And it's a disease that is transmitted from one animal to the other by ticks. So I decided I, I will make a contribution by studying the, the life cycle of this parasite from the cow to the salivary glands of the tick where it is lodged. And so I went out and I would go and pick ticks from uh, cattle, randomly, to see how many of them were infected. Uh, and while I was doing that, I got 
this understanding that there was massive soil erosion taking place in the countryside, especially during the rainy seasons, the rivers would be brown with silt. And I could literally see the topsoil getting lost. And because I grew up in the countryside where rivers were clean and there was no soil erosion and river banks were protected, I was, my mind was awakened to the fact that a much greater problem is taking place in my country and is going to threaten not only the livestock industry, but also the livelihoods of many communities. And I th therefore I decided, I think soil erosion is a greater threat than the tick. <laughs> so I left the tick alone. <laughs> decided, oh, somebody can take care of the ticks. <laughs> so I started really clearly and critically looking at what was happening to the environment. Now, part of the reason why we were having this massive soil erosion is because population had increased. Mm -hmm. And so people were cultivating in areas they had not cultivated before. We had introduced cash crops. And so we had, we had pushed the agricultural land to the limit. And also, we, were, we had introduced monocultures of trees in our forests. These were trees that were being grown, presumably, for wood to be sent out of Kenya? Wood, especially to support the building industry, which was a new industry altogether. Right. And also, at that time, to support the steam engine, mm -hmm. because the steam engine was still using a lot of wood. Uh, but it was really because the country, the colony was being uh, developed, and to develop the colony, you needed fast-growing trees. And so, in their wisdom, they thought that the best way to do it is you go and you cut, you clear cut some of these beautiful indigenous forests and you replace them with trees, especially the eucalyptus and the pines that we are coming from the southern and the northern hemispheres. They did very well because they were growing on virgin land, but they also have great environmental destruction, capacity to destroy the local biodiversity especially. And they also do not absorb the water, the rainwater. Rainwater tends to run off. Mm -hmm. And that's why this soil erosion. So I started seeing the, what was happening to the land because of agricultural practices and forest management, and of course, the impact of population on the land. And so I, I started now focusing on that. And that's, that's what took me completely away from the tick. And, and took you to the green belt. And, and took me to the green belt. Because then I thought, uh, maybe we can plant the trees. But before I did that, it was close to 1973-74. And those of you who, who may have been born by then uh, may remember that in 1975, the United Nations decided to have the first United Nations conference on women in Mexico. And that was the conference that declared the women decade. And women were preparing to go to Mexico. So in the National Council of Women of Kenya, we were preparing. And I was raising awareness of the fact that in the universities, 
women are not being treated the same way as men. But we had come together as women from all sectors. And I started listening to the women from the countryside. And they were saying that they don't have enough firewood, which is their main source of energy. And yet all these new trees were being planted. Yeah. And they don't have food, yeah. adequate nutritious food, because lard was being uh, used for exports, crop, like coffee and tea. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we were not, and they were not having adequate, clean drinking water. Now, for me... So it had changed, though, in, in the, from the years that you were growing up in the 40s, when the countryside completely worked, in 20 years, 30 years, total transformation had happened. You due almost due to recognize. the globalization of the economy. Absolutely. Yeah. It has changed as I had. Yeah. Because, you know, I had gone to America and I had changed a lot. Uh, and I came back and found my country had also changed a lot. Mm. And uh, that experience actually made me feel, during that, those preparations for Mexico, made me feel that what we needed to do was plant trees. So I asked the women, why don't we plant trees? And that's what started it. And how were you going to, what trees? You said you were going to plant indigenous trees and you would provide them. Now we were going to plant indigenous trees. I knew they were not popular because people want to plant trees they can use. But I also wanted to plant uh, fruit trees. Uh, and I knew we would have to do a lot of work to convince people that these exotic species, are, they're good, they, are, they're, they grow fast, they have quick economic returns, but they are also damaging the environment. But that has turned out to be a marathon. Yeah. To this day, we are still trying to convince people that we need to plant trees that are good for the environment. You, you didn't have much joy convincing men of this, did you? The men came much later when they realized that if you plant trees uh, in 5, 10, 20 years, you can sell them. So they thought, ah, this is good economic returns, and so we can invest. So whereas it was the women who looked for seeds, who established tree nurseries, who nurtured those seedlings and planted them on the land, the men wanted to just plant, which was okay. Anything to make them work. Huh? <laughs> but you say at one point that the men actually came and nicked the trees and, and, and stole the trees at some point. Well, they, they haven't actually done much of selling. Actually, I was very happy to see the men planting trees on their farms, even though it was for mainly for economic reasons. They don't have to do it for environmental reasons. Um, but... It is okay because this is a renewable resource. So if you plant and in 20, 30 years you can sell, very good. As long as now you know that it is a renewable resource and as you cut, you have to continue planting. And about, about this time, you also started to get very involved in Kenyan politics. And I mean, it got, it got very rough for you, didn't it, your political life? Yeah, well, you know, when I started, as I said, I was a very innocent university lecturer. University lecturers are benign people. Yeah, yes. They don't hurt Good anybody. Good But they're just very busy looking for knowledge, and that's all I was looking for. And then I saw that I could promote tree planting. And planting trees is a very benign activity, you would think. 
until we saw that it was necessary not just to tell people to plant trees, but also to educate mm. people on why we need to plant trees, why we need to protect the environment, and especially forests. Remember I said that many of the indigenous forests had been clear-cut and had been replaced uh, with exotic species. Now we needed to protect the remaining forests because these are important for water catchment, for biodiversity. And when we started saying we must protect the trees, we stepped on very sore toes of politicians because it was them who were actually benefiting from these lands and from these forests. So the government was not against us because we were planting trees. No, but when you got a little bit into their territory. The government was against us because we were trying to say that they are part of the problem mm. and that they need to stop destroying the environment, that they need to be leaders. They need to provide the leadership to protect the environment for the common good, and especially indigenous forests. And that's when we got into trouble. And they kept telling me, if you only plant trees, nobody will bother you. But don't make the linkages between what destroys the environment. Now, you can't just do the work. You must also explain where the government is failing in providing the leadership. And so we established a program which we called Civic and Environmental Education to, to show us how we govern ourselves, why we govern ourselves that way, and why that type of governance destroys our environment and our livelihoods. That linkage is what put me into trouble. But that to me is the most important linkage because until people understand the linkage between the way they govern themselves and the fact that if you do not govern yourselves responsibly and accountably, you do not protect the environment, the, the resources that you have, and you also do not allow equitable distribution of those resources. So you end up with one, with, you, with a society that may have very rich people, but very few by comparison, and a huge number of people who are poor. Now, poor people get trapped in a vicious cycle where they continue destroying the environment. So to break the cycle, you need government leadership. You need an understanding from the governments in order for the government to encourage citizens to be responsible to the environment. So the, the problems that I eventually found myself in is trying to persuade the government to be responsible, responsible custodians of the resources and to be fair and just, to create a society where everybody could access, for example, clean drinking water, where everybody could access land, where everybody could grow food, and not to commit too much land to coffee and tea, mm -hmm. because people don't eat coffee and tea. No, and, even no, if, <laughs> and even if we grow coffee and tea, to have it managed responsibly so that the poor farmers, many of who are illiterate, are not exploited by middlemen 
Because when you exploit them and you give them very little, they become very poor and they overmine the land. Mm -hmm. And so you get into that vicious cycle that just continues to exacerbate poverty. But when you, you first, uh, under the, uh, when Arab Moy was uh, president of Kenya, I mean, this, your message fell on very deaf ears, didn't it? Completely deaf. I mean, and in fact, you were chucked into prison several times. Yeah, he didn't want and to hear anything of the kind. He said, uh, he started saying something that we all hear when we are in developing countries and we are trying to address issues that are uh, destructive to our societies. Uh, you are accused of having gone to university in the West and therefore you are indoctrinated and you begin to be called a Westerner, a white woman in black skin. That's quite interesting. Did you get frightened? And, I mean, because they really threw a lot at you, which you, you write about. It's incredibly interesting and moving, but you don't at any point say you were scared. And I was reading it and thinking, were you scared? Well, sometimes it was scaring. There were some moments when, when I was scared, especially when I would be alone, because you can never know what mm -hmm. they will do to you. When you are alone with them, that can be scaring. When you are in jail, it is scaring, because you don't know what they can do to you. But somehow, you, you also get this strong urge to continue, because you know you are right. And you just hope that God will give you a few more years a few more days, maybe sometimes you say a few more hours, to do what you can do while you still can. And, and that, unfortunately, is something that the, the oppressors sometimes don't quite understand, that the more they push you, sometimes the more they energize you, and the more they give you that strong feeling that... I'm not giving up. You can't give up. <laughs> you don't have that choice. And, and you have so many people looking up to you, hoping that you'll hold on because their, their strength is also dependent on how you can hold on. If you believe in what you are doing, then they will believe. And that sometimes can be a big challenge. You, you, you after Moy left, you then became the Deputy Minister for the Environment. And were you then able to start to put some of these plans into action? Well, when we finally were able to get rid of uh, President Moy's administration, and put an, a new administration. Mm -hmm. It was an exciting administration because it was comprised to a very large extent uh, the pro-democracy movement that had been waging war against uh, the dictatorship of the President Moy for years. Uh, but unfortunately, the only way we could win, I guess, is when some of the some of Moy's um, people split and joined us. So they came and we won. And we formed a very beautiful coalition called NAC. Yeah. And I, I actually believed that we would change and we would do great things. But as soon as we were in government, we started fighting among ourselves. We started quarreling, we started saying, you got more than I did, and I did more than you did. And before I knew, the, the, the coalition split. Was that really depressing after all that It was struggle? very depressing for me because I could see that um, even though we had fought for so long, some people don't really believe in it. They, they take these as opportunities to get mm -hmm. power. For themselves. For themselves. And once they are in that power, they almost act the same way as the power that you had tried to get rid of. 
So it can be very disappointing. And it was at that point that I said that I'm not taking the oath. Um, after they had thrown some of the members of the coalition out of the government, I said, I'm not taking the oath. I want to be a middle person. I want to encourage these parties to come together, to work together for the benefit of the country. Uh, and uh, I'm still trying. They haven't come together yet. And, and now you face, obviously, the, the problem of climate change and the impact it's having, especially on all the sub-Saharan Africa and equatorial regions. What, what actually is, is its impact in, in Kenya now? And uh, Of course, um, until maybe recently when the Intergovernmental uh, Climate Change yeah. Committee uh, clearly said that they are almost certain, 97% certain or so, that uh, human activities are causing climate change. Many people, you know, have been dismissing this and putting a lot of questions. Uh, and for us, we have seen uh, changes. Now, these changes, of course, can be attributed to deforestation. They can be attributed to mismanagement of forests. Uh, but they can be attributed to the spread of the desert, especially the Sahara Desert southwards. But on Mount Kenya, for example, and Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Luenzori, those East African mountains, they have lost a lot of their ice and snow. Uh, where we used to see a lot of patches, even if you fly over, you see that a lot of that ice has melted away. And many rivers have dried up. And the climate has changed. It's much warmer. And is it having a huge impact on your agriculture? It, yeah, because the droughts, when they yeah. come, they are prolonged. And when the rains come, sometimes they come like the bucket has been let loose from the sky, not the drizzling rains that we were used to. And, and then it bounces off. And then it hits the ground and runs off yeah. with the soil and it causes a lot of floods downstream. So uh, we see these changes. And of course, we say partly due to climate change, partly also due to mismanagement of our environment. And it is for that reason that I have now been involved in uh, trying to persuade uh, not only the governments in the central region, but also other governments to help Africa save the Congo forest ecosystem. And in this connection, I, I, I do want to take time and, and thank the, um, the British government, which recently, I'm sure you may have heard, the British government announced uh, that it would give the it would give 50 million pounds to a fund that should go to the protection and conservation of the Congo forest. And this is a very, very significant support, and we hope that other governments will do the same uh, as, as a measure of uh, mitigation of the impact of climate change uh, in the developing countries, which we are told, especially within the tropics, that they are going to be the worst hit even though they are the least contributors mm. to the greenhouse gases. Yes, on, on that note, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. And we've been talking about these issues a lot at the festival. And that, that fact you raised that, that the, the, most, the, the countries that pollute the most, like, like the Western, like America, are actually going to suffer the least. And there is obviously a debate here about what you do to try to mitigate climate change in terms of, say, the conflict between development um, and aid. I mean, you as you as someone from Kenya, what would you want, what, what would help your situation now from a, from a climate change point of view that, that the West could do? Uh, 
Well, there is no doubt that the, the Western industrialized, um, or let me say the industrialized countries, because Japan and the upcoming um, economies like India, like China, are in this category, that they really need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that we are throwing into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I really don't think we have a choice. We have to reduce. And I think governments are responding to that. I didn't hear, but somebody told me that even President Bush has responded to that. Well, he's responded, but it's not to everybody's absolute delight oh. at this point. Well, at <laughs> least he has responded. And uh, it, it means he's moving. But, but if we look at, say, areas, the fact that we, you know, a lot of the, the crops that are grown in Africa, certainly the tea, the coffee, but much more than that are all grown. And you now look at uh, the, the Amazon rainforest, which is being cut down to grow crops to grow to feed cattle or to soya or for biofuels. These things can't, can't be good. And, I mean, how, does, how do we stop that going on happening to Africa? Well, you know, it is, um, it's always very difficult because when you are confronted with much poverty, and when you are confronted with other development, com confronted with the diseases, yeah. uh, and then as a government you are told you cannot export flowers to Europe, well, that which is, is a, a major point, yes. export, for example, from Africa, Kenya, for example, we export a huge amount of flowers, and they are produced at the expense of lakes like Lake Naivasha which is receding at a terrific And it's speed. also now very polluted, isn't it, from everything that's yeah, been dumped on the flowers? Yeah, because everybody's trying to get the, the best they can, they can while it lasts. It's always very difficult, but I think that eventually our governments have to, have to come to terms with the fact that uh, development doesn't have to be uh, dependent on destroying the very resources that you rely on. I mean, if you can't... On one hand, expect to get uh, funds from tourism, just to take tourism, for example. And at the same time, you are destroying the forests. Mm. And you're destroying Lake Naivasha. You are destroying Lake Naivasha, and you are destroying the Mao complex, for those of you who know, Mount Ken uh, mm -hmm. know Kenya well. And that is the mountain that literally feeds the Serengeti and uh, Transmara area where we have most of our wildlife, uh, which attract a lot of tourists into the country. And also many of these, uh, many of these flower, uh, flowers are not, they are grown by companies that are really not based, they are not Kenyan companies. No, not at all. They, they are just, foreign they come companies. there because it's warm and they get cheap Yeah, labor. so we are just getting peanuts yeah. in terms of small jobs of picking flowers and packing them and taking them to the airport. So there is a lot of, uh, there is great need still for our leadership to be more responsible. We still have elites like me who are still very concerned about the way of life that we lead. And sometimes it is very difficult to tell the industrialized countries, you have to change your way of life when in fact we are very busy trying to catch up with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, there has to be genuine change, even among ourselves. And that's why education is so important, even among ourselves in Africa, to understand that what you are saying, you can't be telling people to not drive uh, oil gaslers mm -hmm. when you yourself 
are driving them. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, we can't so um, there has to be genuine commitment. Uh, you cannot be cutting down trees and at the same time you want the British government and other governments to support you to protect the Congo forest. You cannot be using all your land for export uh, crops like coffee and tea and not encouraging your people to grow food crops. And mm -hmm. when there is a slight climatic change or drought, your people starve to death. Uh, these are changes that are extremely important in our own countries. Now, putting our leaders on track is so difficult. I think maybe you are, easy, you are better off with your own leaders. But our <laughs> leaders, it's so difficult to put them on track because somehow they get disconnected. Once you get into that, those offices and into those powers, you somehow get disconnected and almost forget that you are a servant of the people, not the master. Tell me about winning the Nobel Prize. Now that was uh, an extraordinary uh, thing and uh, I know for sure that uh, when, you, when your name is first, when you are first informed, it doesn't sink. <laughs> uh, it takes a long time, it's still sinking for me. Uh, it takes a long time to understand uh, the power of the, uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize, the, the, the privilege and the honor that is bestowed on you, but also the responsibility that you have been given to be able to pass the message that you have been trying to give, but it's not passing. So in a way, the Nobel Committee puts you on a grand stage and tells you, now give your message. And then the world wants to hear this message and you travel constantly. I have been traveling ever since. And sometimes you feel, I say to my friends, for the very first time, I have come to understand the English saying, the spirit is willing. <laughs> we, are, we know it. <laughs> we know it. Well, we're very glad that you're here in the flesh and you're a very worthy holder of this. And we've got 10 minutes for people now to come in and ask questions. So please... Um, Yes, fantastic. Um, I came of age as a young student at the London School of Economics against the backcloth of the, uh, the White Highlands, and Joma Kenyatta was a, um, a student there and wrote a book which I parted with quite recently called Facing Mount Kenya. But we all know the culpability of the British government in exploiting the White Highlands and in uh, imprisoning uh, Yomo Kenyatta without sufficient cause for his association allegedly with the, um, with the Mau Mau uprising. But my point to you is the difficulty that your leaders has must, uh, we all know, have an awful lot to do with tribalism and the tribe. And when you said that your leaders, you know, find it difficult to take the right decisions of course, every single African country has, or almost every country, has boundaries which were originally drawn by the colonial powers. And the tribal territories are very different. And in difficult times, it's perhaps not surprising that tribal loyalties are very, very important. And the trust they have in tribal as opposed to national leaders is a big, big obstacle for you to overcome. That's very true. That's very, very true. But I guess, the, except for the fact that in Africa, we have become used to talking about each other as tribes, 
you know, almost everybody belongs to a tribe. The English is a tribe. The Welsh are a tribe. The Scots are a tribe. The Irish are a tribe. Almost everybody belongs to somewhere. Uh, what I think is important, but has not been taught to us, is to accept that as a human family, we are very diverse. And this diversity in the human family is not a curse. It can be a blessing. If only we could accept that we may be diverse, but we are all a part of a human family. The reason why we go back to the tribal cocoon is because by appealing to our tribesmen and women, we can go ahead of the others. It's a trump card that politicians like to use. And until citizens are educated to understand that politicians are using them and that they are exploiting that diversity in the society, we shall continue to be manipulated by politicians because it's a lovely card. Because if you don't succeed, you can always blame, blame the other tribes. And if you, are, um, if you are suffering, if you are not a minister, for example, in our government, if you are not a minister, you can always say you didn't get, become a minister because you don't belong to the right tribe. It's, it is a card that politicians love to use. And unfortunately, in Africa, we, we have been using it, almost overusing it. It's not as if the British invented tribe. We were different communities even before the British came. And the fact that the only historical failure, I would say, is that unfortunately, it took the British to bring us together. It would have been much better if we had recognized the need for us to come together because together we are stronger, divided, we are weaker. But we, we didn't, so the British brought us together and sometimes, so we blame the British. It's easier to blame the British. I'll come to you next. Another question um, here. First of all, I'd just like to say I find it humbling that you feel after what Western capitalist system has done to your country. I'm, I, I'm not talking about the colonial dimension. I'm talking about how it's, for example, the creation of cash crops that don't feed you, but give us Starbucks. But, and the first thing I'd like to say to you, and you pass on when you go back to Kenya, is to say, as far as I'm concerned, we have the primary responsibility for altering that. But it's humbling that you think that Kenyans themselves also have that responsibility too. But I consider it's our, our primary responsibility. My question to you is this. Um, you, you travel all the time. How do you keep going when you go from one anonymous hotel room in another strange country to another anonymous hotel room in another strange country? How, what is it that keeps you uh, promoting this message to protect the environment? Well, I, I think that um, I said that, you know, sometimes it's really wonderful when you don't understand things because you can sleep happily. 
But when you understand things, it becomes a burden. Because I understand the linkage between the environment and livelihoods, I find it a responsibility to speak about it. I used to say, and I, as I learned through my own work in Kenya, if only we didn't have to compete over resources. Um, but it seems like human beings are, are so created that they, some of them want to control resources. That's what colonialism was all about, is to how to control resources. And today, we are still going through the same process. That's why we were talking about the Middle East, because of the oil. Mm. It's, a, it's a resource. That's why we talk about WTO. It is another level of trying to control resources. And we talk about trade. Why do we talk about free trade or fair trade? It is because some people want to control resources. I haven't found a way in which human beings can control their urge to control resources at the expense of other people. But as long as we cannot find a way to control that urge, that greed, that sense of selfishness, then it is very difficult for us to live in peace with each other because we shall continue to fight over these resources. So for me, it is, I have this strong urge to pass this message to as many people as I can. And I'm very grateful to the Norwegian Nobel Committee because they gave me the award and so people tended to listen to me more now than they did before. <laughs> as I try to say that sustainable management of our resources is very, very much connected to the way we govern ourselves. And even in Africa, when I talk about the fact that as long as Africa is not managing her resources responsibly and accountably, as long as there are few people allowing those resources to be exploited at the expense of their own people, we shall never have peace in Africa because we are fighting over who will control those gold, gold mines, who will control those minerals, who will control the land. And our leaders so often are willing to, uh, to work with foreign companies. I mentioned about the Congo. And a lot of people who are concerned about the Congo forest want to save the Congo forest also for the people of Congo. But the people who are harvesting timber in the Congo forest, believe me, it is not the pygmies. It is huge Western uh, or rather I should say industrialized companies that know very well the damage they are doing to the people, mm -hmm. but they want the resources. So it is the urge. If only I have one more day, maybe I will convince enough people and we will stop causing so much misery to people everywhere in the world as we pursue resources. Thank you. So one... I'm, pretty... I'm really sorry. We've got time for one more quick question. Karibu mama, labda ni jaribu kuongea Swahili. Nataka kusema nimesoma kitabu yako. Hang on a sec. 
I will translate. And you may And this also has to be quick. I just said thank you very much, Wangari. I read your book and it really touched my heart. The question I wanted to ask you was about what it's going to take within the Kenyan government to actually change the attitude towards the environment. How can pressure be brought to bear? What will make the environment a political priority? Thank you. The people. Uh, let me share with you that I have uh, the, the, the honor and the privilege of being asked by the African Union to try to form a civil society organization that is connected to the African Union because the African Union wants to work with the African people. Different from the Organization of African Unity, which was really a club of heads of states of Africa. The only reason why I picked up, I accepted that responsibility, despite my heavy duty at the moment, is because I truly and sincerely believe that until the people of Africa become sufficiently um, educated, sufficiently strengthened, sufficiently empowered, is the word I was looking for, to be able to hold their leaders accountable, it is difficult to improve the livelihoods of the African people. It is difficult to protect the resources of Africa. Because leaders everywhere, unless they are held accountable by their citizens, they go haywire. And this is true even in developed countries. And that is why we have this process of electing our leaders. And so we encourage ourselves that when campaigns come and we need to uh, cast our vote, let us go and cast our vote. It took a lot of struggle for people to, to bring about the power of the people to vote their leaders. Now, I believe that it is the people of Africa who eventually will reign the greed of the African leaders. But until the African people reach that level, it is going to be very difficult because the leaders feel they can get away with it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and if it's only a woman there, another uh, a man there talking, they can get rid of those people. They can put, the, put them in jail, they can shoot you dead. It is when you have a critical mass, and that's what we are working for. And I, I was, I'm very encouraged that the African Union has the vision to say, can we strengthen the African people? That, I, I could all, almost not believe that they're asking me to do that. Well, smart choice, smart <laughs> choice. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but um, Wangari will be in the bookstore signing her books, and um, I just want to say an incredibly huge thank you. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you here. Thank, thank you. you.